It's our privilege to be studying the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. Therefore, out of respect for the author of Scripture, please please stand for the reading of his word this morning. We'll be reading from Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. This is God's word. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to, the, according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Thus the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we commit this time to you. Give us wisdom to understand ears to hear, and hearts to carry out as we seek to be what you and you alone want us to be. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. The book of Colossians was written by Paul to a church that uh, he'd never had any contact with. He had discipled Epaphras in Ephesus, when he planted the church there, Epaphras was from Colossae, and so he sent, uh, Paul sent Epaphras to this area to plant this church. And so he's responding to a letter from Epaphras in terms of the things that have been going on in this congregation. And he writes back, uh, keep in mind that the theme of the book of Colossians is basically the preeminence of Christ over all things. I'll make reference to that in just a little bit. That's in chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, and uh, the first part of the letter, as most of Paul's letters are, is, is theological, uh, with the rest of the letter being very practical. Now, one of the things to keep in mind as we begin is uh, please don't fall into the trap of saying, oh, just give me practical stuff. You know, that's all I want to know. I don't, I, I don't need to know any of this theology stuff. Guys, theology and practice go hand in hand. You know, it's like this as your fingers are meshed together. Sound practice is based upon solid theology. You can't have one without the other. And as I mentioned, 
the theological perspective that Paul is emphasizing in this book of in this little book is the preeminence of Christ. He's king, he's lord over all things. So file that away. Notice verse 8 begin or verse 6 begins with the word therefore which is marks the beginning of the practical section and Paul is talking about the now that you've come into that relationship with Jesus Christ please understand that you are to walk in him. Now, the idea of walking, I believe we've talked about this before in the past, the idea of walking has nothing to do with how I put my left foot in front of my right. When Paul uses the word walk, he's talking about how do you live out your faith? How have things been going on that journey which began when the Lord brought you to himself and will continue until the Lord calls you home. So how are you doing on that journey? That's that walk that Paul is talking about. And so he's introduced this practical section by telling us that we're to walk in him. We're to be living in this relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what is his first application? Well, he warns them. See to it that no one takes you captive. It's the picture of, of, of being led astray, the picture of being, uh, being basically captured by false theology or false ideas. And the idea of see uh, is, is an imperative term. In other words, it's a command. He's commanding us to watch. He's commanding us to be like a guard so that we wouldn't be led astray by these things. Now, one of the things to keep in mind, and, and please, uh, we've seen this happen. We've seen denominations slide away from biblical truth and become something else. We've seen groups of people, oh, remember the Jim Jones situation, what, 35, 40 years ago now? A recognized denomination, Disciples of Christ, and he leads a bunch of people, well-meaning people, down to South America. And ultimately, there's a mass suicide. Remember, almost 1,000 people killed, 300 of them children. Folks, the majority of people who followed Jim Jones were evangelical Christians. We don't know the depth of their faith. We don't know any of them personally. But they were members of evangelical churches. And something was missing. And so they were led into captivity, as Paul says, by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition. In other words, they added to the scripture. And people were looking for something, and they got drugged down into that. So it happens, guys. And it's happening today. You know, prosperity gospel, feel-good gospel, federal vision, perspectives of Paul. Who knows? But we have to be aware. We have to watch carefully lest we get led astray. And led astray from what? Well, I'm going to talk about six things as Paul emphasizes Christ and Christ alone. 
guys, we don't need anything else. We don't need Christ plus. We need Christ and Christ alone. Why? Number one. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. God became man and walked among us. The second person of the Trinity became flesh and blood and lived out a perfect life in order to accomplish for his people their salvation. When you think about the presence of the divine man here on this earth. It's the picture of God entering history. Space-time history. Actual 24-hour day time in the Middle East. The idea of dwelling meant total absorption. The second person of the Trinity became flesh and blood and walked among us as a man. As you think about that, in John chapter 1, as John paints the picture, John was a picture painter. Please remember that when you read the book of Revelation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ, the very word of God, the message of God to mankind. The word was God. And then verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We see... In John 14, Jesus, who'd spent some three years with these men, working with them, uh, trying to demonstrate uh, the, the fact that he was divine, the miracles, the teaching with authority, all these things, uh, all these things, and now he's preparing them for his death. And within the picture of saying, I, I'm leaving you now, I have to go, uh, he has he responds to questions. Philip asks him, "Lord, show us the Father. It is enough for us." Now, he'd been been with them for three years, you know, and and I've often thought, you know, here as as a teacher, you've got this great lecture, you're explaining everything perfectly, and and then one of your kids raises his hand and says, "What are you talking about?" You know, I, I, I almost feel how Jesus must have been exasperated when he, his whole ministry was uh, God became man and, and dwelt among us. And, 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 and then Philip says, well, show us the Father. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Show us the Father. Do you not believe that I am the Father and the Father is in me? Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Christ is God. 
Now, as you think of that, it is through the finished work of this God-man who stepped into history that we have been redeemed. Our salvation is based upon the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been redeemed through His finished work, His active obedience and His passive obedience. By active obedience, I mean the perfect life that Christ lived on our behalf. By passive obedience, we talk about his willingness to submit himself to the wrath of his Father by being placed upon the cross and suffering a very agonizing death on our behalf. Because of this finished work, and, and keep, keep in mind, guys, when we talk about that act of obedience, that's what is imputed to us. Because when we come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is His perfect life that God sees. So that when He looks at us, He doesn't see us as warped and wrinkled and disfigured and broken. He sees us because we've been washed in the blood of Jesus as being righteous and holy. Jesus lived a perfect life and that is imputed to us, that is given to us. And Jesus died that sacrificial death, paid the penalty for those sins. We don't need anything else. God became man and walked among us and redeemed us through his finished work. If you like to read good stuff, I would recommend to you John Murray's, John Murray taught it, Westminster Seminary years ago. He wrote a classic book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Excellent work as you seek to understand what Christ has done. He is God. That's the first thing Paul establishes here. Don't need anything else. The second thing, Paul says that the fullness that we've been filled in him. Now, the picture here is that we're broken. We're corrupted. We're fallen. But he, because we're spiritually incomplete, we're out of fellowship with God. But because of what Christ has done, we have been filled, we've been regenerated, we've experienced new birth, we've been given new hearts, we're restored, we've experienced this restoration, we are made complete once again. As we're told in the, earlier in the book of Colossians that this restoration process, he's delivered us out of the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. We've been made complete once again. And in that completeness, we have been adopted. Neat doctrine. What happens when you're adopted? 
someone decides to choose you and make them part of your family. That's part of the completeness that we're able to experience, brothers and sisters. We have been adopted by God. He chose us. Please understand, that choice was before the foundation of the world was even established. He didn't choose us because we were such neat, sweet, good people. He chose us simply because he decided to pour out his love on some and not out, not on others. Why? I don't know. But God is God. And in that process, he adopted those. He made them a part of his family. And Paul, in talking about adoption in the book of Romans and in the book of Colossians, says that we can cry out, Abba, Father. The word father makes reference to respect and authority. Obviously, the child and the father. The father is the one to be respected. He is the one in authority. He's the head of the family. The word Abba. Now remember, this is a personal relationship, brothers and sisters. We show our respect in terms of father. Abba is a Greek word for daddy. A term of endearment. A personal term. So in a very real sense, we have the privilege as a child of God, if you will, to crawl up into his lap and be embraced by him as daddy. The completeness that is ours through that finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The third thing that Paul tells us is that Christ is the head over all rule and authority. In other words, he is king. He is the one who rules. He is the one who reigns. Uh, let me flip back to the uh, first chapter of the book of Colossians and look for a minute at verses 15 through 18. If you have your Bibles, uh, you know you can uh, look, to, look at this as well. But Paul here in talking about Jesus Christ makes statements concerning who he is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. When you look at that portion of Scripture, the thing that you have to see, and I, I, I uh, got this terminology from Jay Adams, the Christian counselor from years past, uh, I make the distinction of Monday through Saturday and then Sunday. And how many times do we find in our culture that people say, eh, you know, yeah, on Sunday I'll do these things, I'll be a different person, because, you know, Christ is king on Sunday, you know, he died for the church and, and all that kind of stuff, but hey, Monday through Saturday, that's mine, I can do whatever I want, besides I've got a job and I need to relax and so forth and so on, and so I'll act one way Monday through Saturday and then Sunday's different. And I, I used to live that way. I thought it was, was cool, you know. Uh, but when you, when you look at the Scripture, 
And you begin to understand the authority and the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to understand that he is the supreme ruler over every day of the week. In fact, when you look at this list that I just briefly went through, uh, I, I think it's seven or eight statements. But guys, five of those statements, image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, all things being created, uh, before all things, all things hold together, all relate to the daily affairs of life on Monday through Saturday. Which implies that Jesus Christ is Lord of our lives every day of the week, every moment of every day of the week. He is King. He is Lord. And it's almost like when you look at this portion of Scripture that Paul also says, and oh, by the way, he is the head of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So if you were to, you know, kind of draw lines or whatever, all these statements that are being made point to in everything he might be preeminent. He is the supreme ruler of all things. This is told, this is foretold in the in the scripture, Genesis 49, when when, when Jacob was blessing his children, 2 Samuel 7, when David wanted to build the temple and he uh, he, he's not going to do it. His son's going to do that. But the emphasis is upon this reign of David. Isaiah 9, uh, excuse me, the, 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 this reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 9, uh, Daniel 7, all in the Old Testament pointing forth to this king. This king announces basically his reign. In Matthew 28, uh, he has been raised from the grave. He spends 40-some days with his disciples to make sure that they know that, yes, this is the man who was dead and who now is alive. This is the man who accomplished victory over death. And he's about to send them out. What does he tell them? All authority has been given to me. What does that mean, guys? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, make disciples. How do you make disciples? You go, you teach, you baptize. He is king. He is Lord over all. The fourth thing that we see here about the Lord Jesus Christ ties together all of Scripture, and you need to understand that. Uh, obviously, circumcision was the sign of the covenantal family in the Old Testament. It was a bloody sign. Uh, please understand, it was meant to be symbolic of what happens when uh, uh, we become members of the body, when we become uh, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are circumcised and we're tied this this uh, Old Testament act, the bloody sign, is tied together with baptism. So before Christ came, it was circumcision. After Christ came, the sign is baptism. The key to, re to tying this together is please understand that every page of the scriptures literally points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament 
pointed to his coming. The New Testament points back to the fact that he came. But it's a unit. So the emphasis upon circumcision in the old and then baptism in the new, tying together Christ as Lord from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. Totally. The fifth thing that Paul says about him is that we were dead in our trespasses, but God has made us alive. And what's the picture? How is that done? Dead in our trespasses, God made us alive, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by the canceling of the record of debt that stood against us with this legal demand. In other words, our sin has been taken away. And from the scripture we read earlier, how far? East is to the west. Because of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death upon that cross, our sin has been dealt with. There's a, a, one, of the, one of the old customs in the Middle East was that if you borrowed something from someone, that the, the, the debt that you had when it was paid uh, was nailed to a prominent tree in the middle of the city. So the picture for everybody to see is that debt's been paid. It's no longer to be held against that individual. We were dead in our sins and in our trespasses because of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ who blotted out that sin, who took it away. We've been made alive. We were dead, but no longer. And then the sixth thing that Paul says, that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. What you've got to see here, now, uh, here again, Paul, Paul lived in the Roman culture. And when a Roman general was victorious and he returned from the battle and they would have a parade that went down the main street in Rome and all the people on the sides of the, of the road and, and the conquering general riding in his chariot with the conquered leader drugged behind that chariot with a rope around his neck and his hands behind himself, totally humbled by the conquering general. This is the picture that Paul has in mind in terms of the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ over the enemy. He has conquered Satan. He has won the day. He's that Roman general that all the people are cheering, cheering on the side and he's leading that defeated enemy. And, and by the way, when we think about the tie of Scripture, Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, guys, the first instance of the gospel is given to us in Genesis chapter 3, where the Lord is dealing with Satan. And he says, he talks about, I will 
send, uh, I, I will send a son. And the picture is, you will bruise him on the heel. You ever had a stone bruise on your heel? Not going to kill you, but it's very painful, right? But he will bruise you on the head. The crushing of the enemy, the mortal blow. Christ has won the day. He is that Roman general who returns from the battle, the victor over all. Christ and Christ alone. We don't need any other. It's not Christ plus, guys. It's Christ and Christ alone. He is God in flesh and blood. He makes us complete. We were broken. He heals us. He makes us complete. He makes us part of his family. He is the one who's the ruler of all. He is the one who's throughout Scripture. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon say, you can see Christ on every page of the Scripture. Old Testament points forward. New Testament records his life and his charge to us. We were dead and now we're alive because our sins have been taken away. He is the victor over all. Christ and Christ alone. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for the finished work of Christ Jesus. We do thank you that, uh, that he has made us his and we don't need anything else. We praise you and we thank you for that, Father. Lord, and we pray that as we see to it in our own lives that we would be diligent to not fall into the traps that have become a part of so many's lives. Keep us faithful. May we be a church that emphasizes Christ alone as we go forth. Amen. Let us stand.